Today, I'm talking to Dr. Dean Burnett, who is a neuroscientist, author, blogger, occasional comedian, and all-round science guy, So, uh, which is brilliant. And it's yeah. even better because it's Hoarding Awareness Week this week. And what course, I wanted, yeah. yes, what I wanted mm -hmm. to talk to um, Dean about was, I, I read his book, one of his books called The Idiot Brain. He's written others. Um, and I always refer to, I, you know, I, I, I try and make it fit my, um, my client's brain. So the hoarding brain, how is that thinking and how does what he's writing about refer to that? And so I was listening to him and I thought I really need to speak to this gentleman. So I emailed him and he kindly agreed to do um, an interview today. So I'm going to pass over to him now because he's the one that's interesting to listen to. Thank you, Dean. No problem at all. Okay, so <clears throat> the first thing you talked about was the um, the trauma side of uh, hoarding. How that could, um, you know, the, well, what happens when someone experiences a trauma and ends up uh, as a hoarder, engaged in hoarding behaviour. Um, a lot of things happen, obviously, when we experience a trauma. It's a deep, serious emotional shock to the system, and uh, it's something we. Uh, I mean, we all have ups and downs in life. We all experience bad things. But when we're talking trauma, I mean, things that affect our well-being at a sort of functional level. They prevent us from being able to function. We cannot process the intense negative emotions that we experience as a result of the incident, whatever it may be. And people react to this in various different ways. And you can sort of, sort of see a, like a, a logical progression how that can end up in hoarding behavior. Because when you've experienced a trauma... Um, one of the reasons it can be so effective is because it completely alters your worldview. You know, you've thought the world was safe. You thought you had a sense of control of the environment. You uh, understood how things worked. And usually the trauma puts paid to all that. Because all your preconceptions, all your understandings, all your expectations have been radically altered and shifted because this thing has happened, uh, which you cannot deal with, you cannot process. So your brain's sort of like in a maximum alert state. Like, I, I don't know what to do with this. It's like I'm... You know, you've been shifted right back to the base fight or flight response, which is constantly active. That's sort of one of the big problems with PTSD in that you, know, you this trauma keeps coming back. You um, One of the effects of trauma is that you remember it a lot better. You know, it, uh, it's a flashbulb memory. So like you know, it's the memory system during the trauma is ramped up to maximum and everything becomes crystal clear. So you remember it really well, <clears throat> which is a safety mechanism of the brain, of course. It's like, Okay, this bad thing is happening. If I survive this, I never want to forget this because if it happens again, I'll know what to do. So it makes sense, but it's also really quite damaging on an emotional level to have that. So one of the responses could feasibly be that <clears throat> the brain wants to assert any sense of control over yeah, in your environment. It's in like, well, I thought I had control before, but I don't. So I got to really, really amp that up. One thing that the brain is really stressed by is a lack of a sense of control. And because the human brain is quite you know, expansive and cognitively complex and broad, one thing uh, is uh, that you know, we feel sort of fundamentally connected to is our possessions. Like these are our things; they're expression of ourself. And if you look at some studies, people feel like well, their homes are part of their identity, and things like that. And that can attach to possessions too. So you see people really sort of, you know, this is my car. I love my car. Like, this car says everything you need to know about me, and all the jokes about guys have a midlife crisis you know with the really long cars and oh, i see what you're doing there and um so but you, you could easily see how that could extend to like well you know, this, this is my stuff i've got this if i throw this out i am like surrendering 
this thing. I'm surrendering control. I'm sacrificing a part of myself. And I don't want to do that because I am, you know, I've gone through this trauma. I, I can't risk having, uh, losing that trauma, uh, losing this part of myself or this, this thing that I, I, this is my thing. I bought it. I value it. Um, it's part of me. I don't want to surrender it to the wider world because I cannot trust the wider world now because of the, the thing that happened. And you can easily see how that manif would manifest as hoarding behavior. You know, you're, you're, you're so uncertain about what goes on you know, outside your immediate environment. And you're so, you want to control as much as possible, uh, which includes, I don't want to lose this thing. This is my thing. Like, I, don't, I don't care what value it has. It has value to me because it's part of my world and I don't want to sacrifice that. And, but you no, know, people still have to keep living. You still have to keep eating. You have to get new stuff. You have to you know, keep your life moving. So you can sort of see how that would translate into a, a hoarding type situation whereby someone was like, the trauma has shattered their sense of security in the world. And by not throwing things out, but just by keeping hold of things, they are sort of, it's a sort of fundamental attempt to regain a sense of control. And I, at the neurological level, there is some sort of, a, there's a lot of research which shows that the, uh, endorphin or the opiate system in the brain, which normally through you know, pain suppression and you, sometimes euphoria, but at the lower levels, on the sort of day to day, it's um, you know it's activity there lets the brain realize something is done. So you know, okay, need to do a task. Task is completed. Slight endorphin burst. Okay, I'm done. I can move on to that now. <laughs> and you know, issues with that uh, believed to be a, uh, an underlying part of OCD. Is in like. You've done the task. Oh no, that 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 signal which says I'm done, I can move on, isn't there? So you have to keep doing it. Or I know. So then the brain goes, well, I'm not getting, I'm not getting the hit. What's going on? Why don't? Why can't I um go move on from this thing? And you can sort of see how something similar could be happening with hoarding, as in you know, like I don't need this thing. It's fulfilled its usefulness. Nope, nothing there. Okay, I better keep it because you know it might be useful. It might be functional. It might be something later on that I need. And um, so yeah, like a trauma, could, you know, the, the disruption of trauma could easily lead to something like that and happen in, um, in that respect. So I can sort of see uh, a sort of a logical progression from trauma to hoarding behavior based on uh, what we know about how the brain works. What do you think then is a good way of helping people to deal with that? What What is a sort of a good suggestion for them to come to terms and and take control back the other way, if, if you know what I mean, just <clears throat> being able to let go of things. Yeah, well, I guess you know, it, it did suggest that this type of trauma is uh, at, at heart an, an anxiety disorder, and they have this deep-seated you know, overactive um, amygdala and fear session, uh, fear uh, reaction, uh, which leads them to demonstrate this behavior. So I guess, you know, some sort of... Uh, it would be perhaps an idea to try the typical anxiety route. Like a lot of antidepressants are used as first-line medication for anxiety disorders because they have the relevant effects, even though they're meant for depression, they have those, the disorders have a lot of things in common. So they work there. Um, I guess it depends on how much insight uh, someone might have. Like I think Yes, yes, I think you're right. Because yeah. we, uh, we encourage mindfulness. Um, hmm basically because it's something you can control as well you know you can totally, control yeah. your breathing but also to encourage people to notice their behavior so if they're not as aware of <coughs> what they're doing they can because in support groups this is we we you know we've got feedback then of what's not working <coughs> and, and then the other thing that we suggest is that 
if you feel that discomfort when things are going, then you will, you know, anticipate that discomfort because it is going to happen. That's why you haven't been it. That's why you're talking to us because otherwise you would have felt mild discomfort. It's gone and it's over and, and the, you know, the in-out cycle is working. Um, so we, we sort of say to people, expect that. And we just classify that as change. We said that's, that you, that's you feeling change happening, which is mm. a bit, you know, it's not, totally. not neurological, but, it's, um, but it's, it's a way that people can understand that they will, not, not everybody, there's one, one lady that's sort of right over the other side and she said she never had that feeling, but she only did sort of very small tasks to start with, so she never mm. pushed herself up to it, I think. But the majority of people do describe it. And I think that's, you know, so other than medication, which is not our. Um, no, of course not, no. To, to sort of, <laughs> these are what you need. These are the drugs you need to, you know. Yeah, um, But that's sort of been working. But, but, you know, as with everything, everybody's different, aren't they? And it, it doesn't totally, work yeah. for everyone. No, but any, any mental health issue will have that uh, yeah. you know, to contend with. There are, there's no magic bullet. There's no cure all. And because any mental health issue is such a subjective personal uh, thing. You know, it, it's, it's a manifestation of what's your specific experiences. And yeah. it's not like, you know, it's not like the same germ affecting all different people. It's these are your, the unique series of events which affected you in your life and no one else has had that. So yours is going to manifest in this way, but you know, there's something like mindfulness that is sort of feeding into the same thing, a sense of control, a sense of being able to say, right, I am aware that this is happening and I could exert some effort to change that, or maybe I could just you know, submit to the fundamental drive that I'm experiencing to not do that. Uh, but yeah, just gaining in some sort of awareness and you know, yes, you can that, and that's, control that. That is empowering, I think, because as I said, because also the behaviors you were just describing earlier are subconscious. Mm. That makes everything so much harder. I mean, at least with OCD, people are aware of um, unwanted thoughts and then. Mm. behaviors that they, um, <clears throat> they employ to, to, to reduce those but but when people hoard often they have no idea what they're because because of what you say you know we all buy stuff and we buy things we don't need exactly. don't we? and we hold on to things as well so at what yeah. point do, does that become um exaggerated behavior rather than normal so that's that's the difficult and then what about the other group that I notice which the people that I call organizational dyslexic so these are people that fundamentally I suppose is it executive dysfunction but is it that they mm. they really struggle to make homes for things but they obviously back to not knowing they don't know that that's an issue because obviously they don't know that other people like myself who I'm very lucky in this I can make a home for anything you know mm. easily um and it, it wasn't taught to me by my parents. It's something that, because they made homes in different places. So I know it's not come from them. But this, this is also quite prevalent. And, but this will have affected somebody all the way through their life. But it doesn't really sort of shine up in childhood as much. And then I suppose, you know, teenagers and perhaps going to universities, it's, it's fine. It's expected. So mm. it's not until sort of, I would say mid twenties that this starts to kick in, but I do see this inability to make homes. Therefore your house is very chaotic. I see it in a lot of young families. And mm. my fear there is that it's misunderstood as neglect and then is treated as neglect. And the sort of the, the knock on effect of that is really 
sad and serious, you know. So I'd really like to understand this a bit more if you could help me. Yeah, well, it's, it's very interesting in sort of that angle to look at, that it does sort of make sense in that we know that the brain does this a lot. Of dyslexia is a thing, you know, like just the brain fundamentally is some sort of quirk or just some fluke of development, which means that it doesn't handle the visual language especially well. You know, it, it, you can do it, but it's you know, it takes effort and it takes concentration. Same as like with some dysnumeracy, like you, same thing with numbers and maths. Some mm -hmm. people are just not very good at maths. And like you say, I, I don't see why that wouldn't happen uh, in the spatial arrangement of you know, our ability to, you know, our spatial temporal awareness, the fact that we think, well, this goes here, or like the organizational uh, part of the brain which says, right, we need to put these things you know, in this particular way. That should that could easily have some sort of similar issue in that, okay, it's not quite you know, tuned up to maximum or it's not you know, quite aligned with uh, what we would expect in the wider world. And I think it's really intriguing what you say. Obviously, you wouldn't pick up on this until later uh, in life. Like when a child, there's no test. There's yeah. no test for it. And nobody really is looking for it apart from me, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. so with, yeah. And only with my clients. It's so, but, but as I say, when you see the broader non-looking for it, it can have hmm. some really awful effects, you know, on, on people's lives ongoing, several generations of lives, really. So hmm. it is very important, but... Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. But I think it's also it's even more fundamental in that, because of what you say, that people won't even think of it as a thing until it's probably not too late. You know, it's deeply ingrained because a child has a messy room. That's perfectly normal childhood behaviour. Yeah. Yeah, it's not going to be picked up, is it? It's perfectly like, normal it's teenage behaviour. Student has a, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Student has a messy room. Perfectly normal student behaviour. <laughs> young, adult, young adults live by themselves. Well, might be messy. Who's going to know? And um, the baked bean years, isn't it? You know that's exactly. what's so, happening there. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so again, it's entirely consistent with our expectations as a culture uh, up until the point where, actually, you know, like I say, when they've got families, then it becomes okay. This isn't right. You know, you shouldn't. You know, this is atypical, should we say? Mm. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that's something to be said for that. If people are being mistaken, you know, thinking, oh, you're just a bad mother or you're, like a, you know, you're not good parents because you have this messy house, then that's bad. You know, that's that's terrible to sort of think people are being... Well, it is because, as I said, know. it just has this awful knock-on effect where parents who should be helped are punished and, and quite, mm -hmm. that you know, they can <clears throat> have serious punishments, but then also the children are punished because of the knock-on effect of being removed from their home and then their parents being classified as bad when they're not, you know, and often they're very, very loving parents, but just not able to stay on top of household chaos. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> uh, certainly I find it easier working with people once I've spotted that, um, which is really looking in cupboards and looking at what goes where and asking a few questions mainly where do you keep your socks? But, um, hmm. you know, because you get a good, you know, get, get a good reply if somebody doesn't say a place when they reply to you and they just go, oh, socks are awful. You know, I never <laughs> pair them. I can, not at one point has anybody said, draw, box, hmm. basket, you know, so so that means that that, that thinking isn't there. But but yes, it's, it, it is easier to work with because I just use labels, conversations, chats, where do you think it would be really useful to have your tea bags? You know, if and, and where should mm. we put the kettle? The kettle might be best in the kitchen. There's a cupboard right by it where you could put your tea bags. Therefore, you've got this flow and then labeling so that people can learn, you know, put, retrieve, put, retrieve, and then 
Mm. I think it sort of <clears throat> that muscle a bit more. But exactly, as far yeah. as I can see, there isn't there isn't a test for this. So I wondered if you knew of anything that could be utilised as a test for this or. Um. I mean, there are plenty of uh, visuospatial tests in terms of like the, the clock test or um, you know, just simple, straightforward cognitive tasks to show someone's ability to recognize where things go in space. Um, coming, I can't think of any particular names one right now. I could look this up and send some on to you. But if you would, yeah. that would be yeah. lovely. Thank you. Yeah. There are some, yeah, there are some fairly straightforward. You know, if someone like was to struggle on these particular tests, you think, oh, that's that's odd. That's not something you'd expect. Yes, so, it's just a clue, isn't it? And it's yeah. useful to have a clue. And when you know, depending on what agency is working with client, because people who hoard sort of, there's a big multi-agency group of people that come <coughs> in contact with, and those are the people that I train. And so I'm always looking for things as well to, to sort of balance that out, things that will be useful to agencies so that they can get the right information rather than make assumptions that then cause the wrong actions to happen later down, down the line. So um, yeah. yeah, no, well, that, that that would be that would be really helpful. One thing that comes to mind to sort of think is um, the Stroop test. Are you, are you familiar with that one? No, it's very straightforward. It's um, basically you get, you get a list of like uh, letters, a list of words, and they're all colours, like the word blue, the word red, the word. Oh blue. yes, yes. But they are in different colours. So like the yeah, so blue is actually red, and you yeah, either have green. to say the colour yeah. or the word. The word. Depending. Yeah, and so right. <clears throat> so that could you know that could perhaps get you know, if someone struggles with that, then like okay, so something about your brain isn't very, it doesn't rapidly go to the, the right category, the right organization. Right. And that might be something which is like, oh, okay, so that's that's interesting that you struggle with this because it suggests that your brain isn't good at retrieving and you know, allocating you know, categories right away. So that would perhaps feed into- Yes, that's right. Because they, they've done one little bit of research that I found, they might've done some more, but the one I know, they did a really small research study at Curtin University in Perth in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just got, 20 people, I think, 10 of ten non-hoarders, 10 people who hoard, to bring in 10 portable items from their home so that they could put them in front of them on a table. And they did that. And the people, and then they went, find the broadest category for this stuff. And the people who hoarded just went personal items or household goods. Or, they had no trouble finding a broad category. But the people who hoarded couldn't because they separated them out. And the example they gave was a lady that brought in 10 plastic containers. Hmm. And they said, you know, why couldn't you just say plastic containers? And she said, because they're all different, clearly. And um, like that one had, that's that, that container had coleslaw in it. Uh, and that one had uh, face cream in it. So those are totally different things. And then that bottle had cleaning fluid in it. And that bottle had shampoo in it totally different how can I classify them as the same thing so this is also you know that was the one bit of sort of interesting evidence of inability mm. to categorize which obviously comes under that umbrella doesn't it if you can't categorize you yeah. can't then go <coughs> those all need to go there so yeah I think maybe, or maybe it's like an, an excess or an amplified ability to categorize the point where you know you yes over categorizing yeah your brain's too used to it too like uh, that muscle is really exercised so I need all these things because this is my specific thing for this specific task, this specific thing, for this specific task. And then. It well, it's like filing, yeah. paperwork yeah. filing. <clears throat> it will just go into subcategory and subcategory and subcategory and never get mm. done. So, so one, what the two last things then shame, everybody who struggles with hoarding behavior, be it trauma based or, or um, 
organizational inabilities are very, very, very ashamed. So where does that come from? That's the bit that I don't really understand. I just know yeah. that it's there. We talk about it a lot. And of course, shame means I am bad. Therefore, mm. I am a bad person, which is also paralyzing in itself. And so this is another thing that sort of stops people in their tracks because they're, you know, they're, mm. they're, they're flawed by it, really. Yeah, and they'd possibly be less willing to come forward to Absolutely. get help because then <clears throat> Well, I guess, um, I mean, in the broader sense, there is a sort of cultural uh, you know, stigma around this sort of thing. Like it's a, it, we, we prize cleanliness, we prize order, we prize organization. And to be aware that you're not conforming to cultural norms is often uh, a big part of uh, where shame, the shame of it. But also that's, that's sort of how, you know, one of the main reasons why mental health problems can be so hard to pin down because you know, with, with physical health issues, we know what the human body is meant to look like. You know, it's meant to work, you know, on an instinctive level. We all see it, see them all around. So if someone is like, you know, leaking black fluid from every pore, you think, oh, that's that's not meant to be happening. So clearly something's wrong there. <laughs> They've been bathing in the wrong stuff. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Either this is some new thing or like, you, you need some help, mate. You know, or like, so if the legs is pointed completely wrong direction, it's, oh, legs don't go that way. We know, you know, you need some help. So it's easy to do when it, you know, it's a physical issue. <clears throat> or someone just in pain or something coughing because they're like this is wrong um but you can't do that with anyone's mind because everyone's mind is so different and there's no boundaries to it so we normally end up comparing it to social expectations and norms and when people don't conform to those for you know reasons which don't make any objective logical sense then that's when you start invoking things like mental health problems so by you know, i guess by definition hoarding behavior is atypical in that we don't expect people to do that <clears throat> i mean if we had a culture where that was rewarded we would think like, throwing things away was frowned upon then i guess all behavior presumably wouldn't have the stigma attached to it but well uh, i think i think that's an interesting <clears throat> thought because we, we've sort of said if you were in a tribe and you were hmm. the hoarder you would be the holder of all things glorious wouldn't you and hmm. people yeah, would go to you because <laughs> you've got everything so it is, it's, it, you know, in a, you're right, in a different society, it would be a completely different viewpoint. And there is one point that often gets brought up is hoarding money is fine. Yeah, totally. It's, it's admired and, you know, sought after and, you know, revered and aspirational, isn't it? Hoarding money is okay, but hoarding anything else isn't. And so, yeah, these are just interesting facts. And then finally, this is um, a phenomenon that's happened in COVID. So in lockdown, some of my um, clients and the people that come to support group have been shielding with family members away from their own home. Mm -hmm. And um, they've reported to me that when they finally returned, they were A, shocked by the condition of their home, and then B, found it so much easier to work on it. So what 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 neurological thing was going on there then? I, I sort of yeah. knew that this had happened. My guts went, yeah, that makes absolute sense. Because oh, I've yeah. even thought about hoarding holidays, you know, like sending <laughs> people off for a month or something. If it works, yeah, of course. Fab, you know, and then bring them and do lots of sort of, you know, spa type things and then bring them home again because this is a, you know, it's a purposeful journey. But mm. so what 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 do you think is that? Yeah, well, I think that sort of feeds back into the previous question. I think another aspect of why people would feel shame, it's the <clears throat> it's one of the things which sort of distinguishes a compulsive disorder from an addiction. <clears throat> it's the level of um, 
awareness that you you are doing something that you don't want to do in terms of people say, I know I should throw this out. I shouldn't keep this. I'm aware that that is the expected norm, but I can't bring myself to do that. So like you have this goal and, or at least this aspirational ideal, this outcome that you want to achieve and you fail to do it. And that's where a lot of the sense of shame comes from. Then I have let myself down. I have not met my expectations. And that can be a big part of that. But um, obviously when you're surrounded by it, when you're in your own home, it becomes uh, you know, part of your background of your life. It's something you're used to because you know, our homes are a big part of who we are, our identity and our sense of self. But we, you know, everyone's home is an expression of what they want you know, the world to see of them. And again, maybe the shame comes from that in terms of like, well, this isn't how I want the world to see me, but here's, this is what it is. So if you go to someone else's house for like prolonged periods and you know, you're not in control there, like it's not my house. I can't necessarily hoard here because mm-hmm. these aren't my things. These are someone else's things. They are caring for me and I'm going to respect their wishes uh, in their own home. And then it's, it's sort of like, you know, when you give up smoking for long enough, like you, the urge sort of goes away because the things the brain's used to, which is which familiar with, are, they're no longer familiar. I mean, yeah. I think, I've experienced a similar thing. Like I'm, I went to meet some friends in the pub yesterday for the first time in what? Yay! <laughs> eight eight months. I thought this is weird. I don't know how to do this anymore. Like it's go there. <laughs> no, I'm going at the weekend, and and I must admit, I'm thinking the same thing. It's like yeah, and I, I need to look up the rules as well, which is even weirder. I don't know. Yeah, you know, exactly. I don't totally I, know <clears throat> what to do. Have I got to I've, book? Have I got to I'm wear a mask? Yeah. What exactly. you know? And I think that's sort of like the same thing. I think it could be happening there. And you go back to your own house, be like. How, how does it work when you have your own house again? You, know, you are yeah. learning the rules yeah. again. And like, oh, this isn't meant to be here. This isn't, this yeah. isn't. So I, you I know, can sort yeah. of remake the rules, can't you? Because yeah. you're learning them again. Yeah. Yeah. You've learned oh, from someone else's environment right. and yours is a big contrast. Hang on, oh, no, this isn't meant to be like this, is it? I, I realise that now. So, you know, you have, um, you know, you don't have the familiarity or the habit in place. No. So you can come at it from a different angle and hopefully from a more constructive one. Super. Well, that's it. Thank you. Um, thank mm-hmm. you so much for entertaining the thoughts about the hoarding brain. Um, as I said, I, it's it's this is my world, and I find it fascinating. <laughs> but but also, you know, I, I am always interested in things that will help people to understand themselves. And I thought your explanations were so clear and so. Mm-hmm. Um, and also very funny, and that always makes a difference. And that, you know, be encouraging, yes, I suppose. Yes, because sometimes this it, it can be quite a dry topic when you're talking about brain mm. and big words that people don't know what they are. Um, mm. But you made it extremely accessible, and 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 that's exactly what you've done today. So thank you, thank you very always much. Always happy to help. Yes, for no your problem. time. Thank you. Thank you. No problem.